0: Automata with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Robohub podcast. Today, our interviewer Lauren Klein talks with Dr. Patricia alves Oliveira about the upcoming RSS Pioneers Workshop and about her work in human-robot interaction. Over the past two decades, robots have interacted with children to help with math training, social interaction and healthcare. Toward these interactions, researchers have explored robots of various forms, from humanoid to geometric, and with a range of functions and abilities. Alves Oliveira discusses the design of her YOLO robot, built to help boost children's creativity during storytelling. From her work at RSS Pioneers to the development of her robot creativity project, Alves Oliveira shares the experiences that shaped her work as a robotics researcher.
1: Hello and welcome to RoboHub. Can you introduce yourself?
2: Hello, my name is Patricia and I'm a PhD candidate in human-robot interaction. I have an interdisciplinary program and I work between Portugal and the US.
1: Great, and today you're here to talk to us a little bit about the Pioneers program at RSS, which you participated in this year.
2: Yes, I've just been to Pioneers in RSS, so my memory is really, really fresh and it was an amazing experience. So the goal of the Pioneers overall is to promote networking and feedback for PhD students that have a mature project, let's say, and that would like to share it with their peers and more senior researchers to get feedback over their work and also to build a broader networking uh, system.
1: So how does, how does Pioneers go about this? How is it organized? What can someone expect if they're participating?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, so so Pioneers was uh, basically, Pioneers from RSS was largely inspired in the format of Pioneers from the conference HRI, and the HRI Pioneers was born from a workshop uh, series, if I'm not mistaken, that was so valuable to get people together and to discuss the subjects that then they they wanted to formalize this in the, in the main conference. Um so Pioneers is a type of doctoral consortium, I could say, but it definitely goes beyond that. And it goes beyond that because uh, you not only uh, interact with your peers that are in the same stage as you, which is super valuable, because you have a lot of common fears and expectations and hopes, and you can share this in a very informal setting, but also because you get to interact with um both senior and young professors, so you get to be exposed to these different views of what academia is and how people get to where they are right now, what were the choices they've made and what they would have done differently if they could go back. But also it's a place where you can, you know, think and... uh, Ask questions about uh, the issue of academia versus industry because there are a lot of keynote speakers invited that are also from industry.
1: Can you explain a little bit about the setup of the pioneers? Advocates present and then they get feedback from a variety of people, or is it that the professors and industry experts present, or is it more of a conversation environment? Can you kind of paint a picture of what it looks like to
2: be there? Yeah, so first of all, it's a very intense full-day workshop, Um, and the way it goes is by invitation only, so you really need to submit your research project or research proposal, which is a short submission of around two pages or four pages, depending on which pioneers you go, but in RSS, it was two pages. And you are invited to describe your PhD project and where you are, what you have achieved, And what you plan on achieving in the future. And the great thing about it is that it gets peer-reviewed by uh, people, senior researchers in your field, and the reviews you get in that starting point are right away really valuable for you.
1: You receive written reviews based on your applications.
2: Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, So usually the, the reviews are very targeting your phd project very much targeting your research questions and it's like you know you are presenting this to an expert people that are not your supervisors so it's a third eye view over your work which is always valuable because a lot of you know questions that you think are basic they arise and they're only basic to you because you know it's your project and you you are the one thinking about it. But then for other people, it's not that obvious, and you need to make that communication happen. It's one of the key points, I think, in communicating your work. So the format of the pioneers is is comprised by different aspects. You have uh, lightning presentations of your work, so everyone gets to present in the slide format in front of the audience of the other peers and uh, researchers the work, Uh, which is basically what you have submitted. So kind of your research project. So everyone knows what everyone is doing at this point. And then you also get to choose with who you would like to talk more and who is more aligned with you. And I think this is really important because at the end of the day, uh, these people are in your stage of, you know, uh, academic journey, which means also that Probably they are going to be the ones that you're going to write grants with and they're going to be your peers in the long run. So this is a great way to establish that common ground with them and to, you know, just ask questions and never be afraid to expose your thoughts to them. I think this is also very, very good. And, and then you have uh, small group discussions. Between organized group group discussions that can be with your peers or also with senior researchers, and you have panel discussions, which is a great way to ask, you know, <laughs> um, young young professors uh, like what do they value when they hire someone, or even uh, more senior professors, um, some tips from their from their experience.
1: Great. So it seems like this really covers all of the bases, this workshop.
2: Yeah, and I think the, the environment gets so you know safe to really ask any question that I find very, very valuable and very rare. That's
1: good to hear. Can you tell us some of the valuable things that you took away?
2: Uh, so for me, it really made me think about my place in academia right now and where I want to go in the future. Um so in my case in particular, I really want to continue in academia, but the fact that I've heard so many things uh, from, you know, research in industry settings, like for example, in RSS Pioneers, we had people from DeepMind in the research part of DeepMind, so that was re- really interesting to, to learn some of the differences that For us, PhD students are really not that obvious. For example, the funding was something that really came out. As researchers in academia, we need to, you know, constantly look for it and apply for grants, and it's like um, a full-time job. (laughs) And and in industry, you get to do research, but you don't need to be worried so much about the funding. But then maybe you need to worry about some, some other things, like the content that you can publish is more limited than in academia. So it really depends also at the end of the day of your personal journey, what you really want to do as a person. And I think this will, this is what I think everyone was thinking at some point. Like we can be a lot of things and there is a lot of opportunities. And now we know kind of what are the good and the bad parts about each one of them. But what do I want to do with it? And and I think that's what I've learned to place myself in all of these things that uh, academia and industry have.
1: And how much do you need to know about your goals and your career path coming into the workshop? Because as you said, they discuss the pros and cons of a few different trajectories, industry research, academic research. How how much are you expected to know coming in?
2: So I would say that the majority of the people in RSS Pioneers were PhD students around third year, fourth fifth year so it's when you feel you are committed with a given topic or even project that you want to pursue and you have done some work on it it does not need to be published you just you have you can only describe it and and then you already have like a vision of what you want to do in the future with what you've learned before I would say so if you're really really in the beginning which is more like an exploratory stage uh, and it's great stage um, but you have not converged yet into anything because you're still, you know, looking around, playing with things. And I think this is essential, but in the stage of the pioneers, I would say that you need to have a little bit more of a clear vision of what you're going to commit in the next years of PhD. Great.
1: And then after the PhD, is it important to know whether you want to go and do academic research versus industry research in order to,
2: No, I think, I think, I think that's the great thing about it. I think you just need to have the question in your mind. It's not, it's not for sure that you're going to find the answer, but for sure uh, the content will make you think about things differently. Yeah.
1: And what is the thing that surprised you the most when you were listening to all of this information from other people, from your peers and from industry and academic experts? What did you learn that you didn't expect?
2: Mm, That's a great question. Um, Let's see. I think I've learned that a lot of the people that shaped my decisions of what I've been doing lately in, in professional terms, they were professors and they continue to be professors. So these are the really inspiring people in my life. And I think I want to become a professor maybe because of this. And that was really surprising, I think. You know, it's like this inside moment that you think, oh, everything makes, makes sense. You know, I'm here because, you know, it makes sense to be here. And also what surprised me in a more practical term is how you can engage uh, right away into other, you know, dimensions of academic work because you are in the workshop. So, for example, if you are a participant in the RSS Pioneers workshop, and you want to continue learning with it in the future, you can do so by, for example, applying to organize it in the next year. And you can only do it once. So you can only do it when you are the participant of that year to apply to organize it in the next year. So it's not like you can go back and say, oh, oh, by the way, (laughs) I want to organize it. No, you have to do it in that year. And this means that you get to see the backstage of what it is to, you know, organize a panel discussion with uh, researchers or professors and how to manage all of the submissions that come to you and how you get to decide whose group you want to have in the workshop but from the perspective of a more selective perspective so you are you know either a pc member or a general chair and and i think that that is also a great opportunity to learn about this part and this ties a lot with you know writing grants and collaboration with peers in different ways. So I think this is very surprising as well. Sure,
1: that you get this experience.
2: Yeah, and to be given the opportunity, yeah.
1: Right. And how do you plan to keep in touch with the people that you've met, and can you describe a little bit the network that you have now, now that you've done RSS Pioneers?
2: Yeah, so... I would say that um, everyone is really interested in robots. That's a common thing about everyone. And it can be an interest that comes from different perspectives, either from a more robotics sense, you know, algorithmic sense, uh, and also from a more uh, human-centered sense, design, vision. So everyone gets together. Um, and I think the network right now is also a little bit what the field of of HRI, human-robot interaction is, which is uh, multidisciplinary. So I think the network translates the nature of the field. So there are people from different backgrounds, and that is also required to be an effective researcher in HRI, to be able not just to learn a little bit from different fields, but to at least be able to comprehend and talk with other people from other fields. And I think pioneers really got together, these people from different fields.
1: Right. So there's a focus on diversity in thought and diversity in research background, which can kind of help you place your work in the fields of robotics and understand where your work falls in robotics in general, and also learn a little bit about other areas of robotics, which you may not necessarily study as frequently.
2: Exactly. And that's the interesting part about it, because even if I am not uh, studying a given topic in my PhD right now, but I know that in the future I would find another topic of interest and I can associate someone. So that, that's really great.
1: Right. Especially for collaboration purposes. If you have kind of a multifaceted project, it's good to know people who are researching in these different areas. Exactly. exactly. So now that you've told us a bit about pioneers, can you discuss a bit about your own work in robotics and what inspired you to get into this field?
2: I mean, from psychology, saw in robotics the potential for discovering new tools to study people. So mainly when I say I'm from robotics to my psychology colleagues they're like, "Why? Why did you switch to machines?" But actually it's all about the people still. And it it's what drives my work from all the angles I've, I've been doing things. Robots are great. They're predictable. They are, you know, you can, you can code wherever you want. They can do things as many times as you want. They're the perfect tool for a psychologist to use in a controlled experiment. So I just thought about this potential and how I could acquire it, uh, to also feedback knowledge into psychology, but also in other fields, how we interact with technology. So this was definitely a factor that inspired me, and it gave me an opportunity to learn about something completely different, to be working with people whose vocabulary I had to learn. So all of these gave me a perspective of growth, which is something I was really seeking for. Um, Psychology is a field that exists for a long time. So I was seeking for something that I could maybe be a little bit more creative, more risk-taking in the types of research questions. And a lot of things in psychology happen inside the lab. And human-robot interaction is all about going into the real world with robots. So that's, that's super exciting for me. All of this noise that exists in the experiments is very, very important. And it tells so much about the limits of our work and the potential of it.
1: Can you tell us about a favorite project of yours that you've been working on during your PhD?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, during my PhD, I, I focused on creativity and robotics. Um, and basically what I really want is to use robots to empower capabilities that people already have, uh, such as the capability of creating something Uh, So I thought about robots as tools, as catalyzers for for the creative process. Um, So in my PhD right now, what I wanted to do was to create these robots for children so that during their playtime, they would create some amazing stories uh, because the imagination process would be an interaction between their own imagination and then what comes in the interaction with the robots.
1: What's involved in that interaction?
2: Yeah, so basically the robot behaves as a toy. And and that was also a very challenging problem in the beginning because I wanted these robots that children could, you know, play around in an unstructured play setting, free play, go out, outdoors. And there are not many robots that can do that. They are usually more restricted to platforms and outdoors outlets and cables and sometimes they are very sensitive to carry around and even the children are afraid of doing that. So I decided I wanted to build a robot that could accommodate for free play. So so then I started doing design sessions with children and started understanding what they want and how they play with it and what is the type of activity that can come out of, of this design process. At the end, we had very different several little robots that they could play with and they could go out with them because, for example, the power system of the robot is inside the robot. So this, all of this then creates a different experience of interaction because from the moment that they can grab and run with it somewhere else, uh, it means that the potentialities of playing with it increase. So one of the things that can happen is they are playing with a robot as they do with with their own toys, like with a car or with a doll, And then the robot does something back according to the play patterns that that it perceives are happening in that point in time. And children react to what the robot is doing. So we have to take this into like a storytelling context approach. Like they're saying the robot is going home and they move the robot home, but then the robot does something completely different. And what they do is to try to justify the robot behavior like, oh, no, the robot doesn't want to go there, or he's, he's late to go somewhere else. So this becomes a joint interaction, interactive process of creativity between children and the robot that's very interesting to see.
1: So because the robot's able to take actions that are different from what the child's intending, the child is then kind of prompted to understand or create an explanation as to what the robot might be doing and this fosters creativity.
2: Yeah, so we didn't want to rely on the definition of randomness for creativity, because that's something different. We really digged into what creativity means in the scope of my work. And usually people think about creativity as ideas that are completely out of the box and innovative. But also, which, which is part of the divergent thinking of the creative thought. But okay. then... You need to converge at some point, you know, like to have this, to choose the best ideas, uh, to understand how they fit together and then to deliver something. It could be a product, it, it could be a service. So for that, convergent thinking is also really important. So in my work, we are trying to play with this divergent and convergent thinking in storytelling. So when the robot does something different from the play pattern that the child did, it's kind of stimulating a plot twist. So we want a divergent thinking approach here. And if the robot mimics what the child is doing, we want to elaborate on this. It's a good idea, let's keep on with it. So we want to simulate convergent thinking. So the robot can do both of these things and it behaves in a very minimalistic way. So it doesn't use natural language to interact, but rather different movements with different speeds and angles, play patterns and lights. This was all studied with children, what would work and what would not work. But, but this abstract way of communication is also very enriching for the creative process. So how did you choose when the robot
1: should diverge and when the robot should converge?
2: We focused on how children build stories. And there is a storytelling arc. Usually it can be more complex or not. It depends a little bit, but, um, Mainly you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So in the beginning and in the end, you want things to be more coherent uh, in the beginning to to start to ground the story, to introduce the characters, the context, the scenario, the actions that are happening. So you want something more coherent, and in that case, the robot mimics what the child does, so it kind of establishes the convergent thinking approach and then, There is a middle part which is called the climax of the story where you would expect peaks of actions and usually the bad guy comes into play according to children (laughs) Um, or someone has a superpower that they just discovered. So in that moment, the robot feels that the movements are with a different speed. They are more aroused and we enter the climax, the middle part. So we start the divergent thinking approach. And then things go, go down a little bit more, so they, they calm down in the, in the falling part of the action. So we, we go back to the conver, uh, convergent thinking because we want the story to end at certain point. So basically, the robot decides according to the movement patterns and to the time of the story, the storytelling arc.
1: How do you know where in the storytelling
2: arc the child is? So we did uh, an observation study um, in the middle of this design process of building the robot with children um, playing with the robot, but the robot was a prototype, so it was turned off and it didn't have all the skills, but it did what we wanted. So we asked them to create a story uh, with the robot. And there, there is a mean time for each period, uh, no matter how many children play with, with the robots. So usually it's around five minutes, the whole thing. Can go to seven minutes, but the really engaged part is this. So then we did some, we established mean times for each of the processes. And then we mapped those times to the type of play patterns that occur. So the robot knows from two different uh, points of interest where the, the children are in the story. And then it can decide what to do.
1: I see. So you had an intermediate pilot phase or testing phase, pilot testing phase, where you brought in children to inform the ongoing design of this robot, as opposed to designing completely based on previous work and then testing at the end.
2: Exactly. So our approach for both the software and the hardware part was very human centric in this in this case, child centric. And with the ages that we wanted at the end, so the end the end users would be around seven to eight years old. So all the testing and the design was informed by children from the same age, so that it would be coherent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so they were brought into the lab, but most of the times I would go to schools or to science museums for children to just test ideas, and I would right away understand what's what's working and what's not working. Because, for example, one of the things that um, is really interesting is that you give the robot to a child and the child starts playing and then another friend comes, and then another friend comes. And it's like this whole bystanders that we never account for and that are always there. (laughs) So um, we wanted to establish this abstract interaction and kind of minimalistic to also account for to avoid disappointments, basically. We don't want uh, the robot to not acknowledge the other children, so let's just keep it open in the sense that everyone can play with it and it's not differentiating between children, but is differentiating the story that is happening. Um, so that was one of the approaches, for example, because children just share toys all the time.
1: Wow, so after all of these design phases, what did the robot end up looking like? What was the final
2: form of the robot? So the robot is, it has an abstract form, I would say, which is also very important because it sets kind of realistic expectations. Um, I I would say it's not a robot that disappoints you because it doesn't set the expectations that go beyond what you see. Uh, So it does not have eyes or ears or mouth. So I don't think you would expect the robot to to see or to, you know, speak with you directly, like in a normal language tone. Um, It has these fibers on the top, like on the crown, and they illuminate to give a lot of light to the interaction. And then it has the wheels and it moves around. The rest of the body is very geometric. It's simple and it's white and you feel safe to grab it and play around with it because it has this consistency uh, in the body that affords touch and movement and pushing. Um, So right now the robot is very abstract and I, I I could say that the robot looks like something specific but every time I'm with children they say the robot is something different than what I think. So some of them say it's like a pineapple, Others tell me it's like a superhero. So you, you don't really know. <laughs> and this kind
1: of This kind of goes along with what you were telling me before in that the behavior of the robot is kind of abstract or all-inclusive as well. So as not to leave out any one child or anyone's interpretation, both it's, the actions and the form of the robot are designed to be inclusive of many different kids and many different types of... Of interactions.
2: Definitely and I think this was a, a goal that we understood from the beginning that was important for the context of creativity provocation with robots. So if you want the robot to create a story with a child and if the robot uses natural language to convey ideas for the story they would be very concrete and maybe they won't leave enough space or not as enough space as you would desire Um, for a child. And that can be because of different things, can be because they look at the robot and they associate an overpower of intelligence or something like that. Um, And they they become a bit more cautious of what they say. Uh, Rather, in the case of my robot, which is called YOLO, uh, if YOLO um, uses more abstract and minimalistic interaction modalities, but that can accommodate the interaction in itself. So it's a reactive type of interaction. The robot does something because it's reacting to something that the child did. So it makes sense, but it's minimalistic. So it will never get the, get the feeling in the child that something wrong happened, that the idea was wrong or, or something like that.
1: Once you were able to come up with the final design and action set of the robot, how did you validate your work? And did you compare to a control group or were you kind of just looking to explore how the children would respond?
2: Yes. So we did several uh, studies uh, that I finished not so long ago um, uh, with, with a full robot and the creativity context. And we had several conditions as well. So for example, uh, we had a condition in which the robot was fully creative and social with children in the story. And then another condition where the robot would be just turned off because we wanted to see if the interaction in itself would, you know, provoke some creativity or just the robot even turned off would be enough. Um we also thought about having a condition in which we would have a normal toy and we thought about the teddy bear because it's the most neutru- neutral associated toy. But then we would be comparing uh, apples and oranges. different a bit. things. Yeah. So we ended up not doing that. Um, so right now I'm analyzing the data and it's really interesting because children can always come up and create stuff. Um, but the way they do it and the way they react to the robot, especially if if we are talking about social creativity, so when children create in a group compared to when children create alone, which was also something I looked into, it's also very different and very interesting. So to, to then have a way to tell where the creativity lies, uh, we are trying to figure out, uh, we, are, we are right now analyzing the data um, in, in different domains of creativity. So one is a creative person, what What is the impact that the interaction with the robot had in your creative abilities, your creative potential, which is usually measured with, with tests like uh, pre and post tests. And then we wanted to see the full creative process, how rich it can be, because sometimes you end up with a story that is more conventional, but it had a huge innovative creative process behind that you never get to look at. And usually that creative process is super messy (laughs) and super hard to understand because there are a million things happening at the same time and then they end up choosing some of them and how do they make these decisions. So we wanted to see if a creative process um, is also something that is being stimulated with a robot. And then we look at the final story. So how creative is this final story, The, the ideas that they decide to keep? So we have these three dimensions.
1: So it seems like you have pretty set research questions that you were exploring through this study, but I imagine it wasn't always this way. Tell me how your PhD process and how your research changed since the start of your PhD.
2: Yeah, there was a lot of things that changed, especially now that I'm, I'm about to deliver my thesis. And it's, that's a great timing for this question. <laughs> I, I come to realize that, the the core ideas I had in my in my initial years were the ones that I kept throughout my PhD. That that's an interesting aspect because when you think about them in the beginning you think they are very, you know, um they're they're just temporary. They are just going away because new ideas will come. But actually some of them really stayed, um which which was interesting to see how they then developed. So one of the things that uh, I really wanted to see, really wanted to have was an open-ended task. Because uh, according to the literature and to the things I've been experiencing myself, when you have an open-ended task, usually it's way easier to get creative. Although you have to have some structure around it, which is why storytelling works so well with children, because you don't have to impose a new task, they just know what the story is. It has characters, it has actions, it has a place. So this structure that they already know, you can leverage on that and then just say you can create whatever story you want. So that idea kept with me, and I've been I tested it in the beginning before building a robot. I created a a digital game, so for children in which they would have again these characters that are very minimalistic. Uh, And they would have to create a story, which which meant for me, I'm testing if minimalism, minimalistic interactions would work in the creativity context. That was very important because investing in building in a a robot without the previous knowledge, if it's going to work, would be a huge uh, leap of faith, (laughs) which is not (laughs) not very good for a PhD to make a leap of faith decision like that. So that was one of the things Uh, if you have if you have a way to test your idea with some, you know, uh, some type of technology that can be more economical for you, but very informative at the same time. I would say definitely do it before engaging into the real thing. Uh, And then there were other ideas that I had to let go, which was also an interesting process because I was very passionate about them, but they just, you cannot do everything and you really have to decide at some point where you want to focus on. And then the, the surprise of learning during grad school. That's an incredible time and opportunity to learn. You can learn anything. This will be how where your expertise will also lie on. So invest your time in something that you really want for you, I would say. Yeah, in my case, it was in the fabrication and the design of the robot. So that was a skill set that I really acquired during my PhD. That was really important.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and best of luck in your next stages. Thank you so much.
0: And I'm afraid that's it for today. Check out robohub.org forward slash podcast to find out more about this work or to listen to any of our past episodes. And if you have a project you would like to have featured in one of our upcoming interviews, please feel free to reach out to us by emailing our president, Audro, directly at audro.nash at robohub.org. Our next episode will air in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Automata with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.